Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. Uh, we are very excited today to have Virginia Cumberbatch here with us, who is the Director of Equity and Advocacy at the Division of Diversity and Community Engagement at the University of Texas at Austin, and really a former um, LBJ uh, School of Public Affairs alum, really one of our city's foremost social justice advocates, uh, working really at the intersection of higher education and uh, community engagement and social activism. So we have, and, and Virginia is also uh, the co-editor of a, of a recent book, a very important book, As We Saw It, The Story of Integration at the University of Texas, which I would encourage everyone to go out and purchase, even though I think the first uh, copy, the first print run um, sold out, a, a print run of over 2,000, and now we're, we're reprinting it. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. This is super exciting. Um, but yeah, we're super um, encouraged by the response that we've gotten, not just within the university, but the community of Austin at large, as well as throughout higher education about the importance of this book, but how this book sort of helps to contextualize the importance of historical um, memory and institutional memory and how it really helps us set the stage for current conversations around diversity and inclusion. I want to circle back to the book. I want to ask you, first of all, um, about your role at DDCE, because the Division of Diversity and Community Engagement at UT is really a very capacious and the biggest in the country of its kind that does, uh, I want to call it more than just diversity and inclusion. It really is um, advocating equity um, and, and, and justice uh, and fairness and opportunity, but focus on outcomes as well um, here at the university uh, and the city of Austin um, proper. Um, can you tell me and tell us about your role there? Sure. So um, the Division of Diversity and Community Engagement, as you alluded to, is a very robust division, a sort of one of the first of its kind in higher education to have all of these things living under one umbrella and more importantly, to be a vice president portfolio, which means there was true money, power and um, visibility being attributed to that space. And so as you eloquently put, you know, it is beyond just what are we doing around diversity when it comes to student representation, but instead talking about institutional policies and creating a sense of belonging for all students and staff and faculty, which I think is the inclusion part and the equity part. Um, and I've been really blessed to be a part of the other part of the mandate of the division, which is community engagement. And I really look at it as this, how do we make the University of Texas less of an ivory tower and more of a community? Community anchor. What does it look like to leverage the resources, the research, the fiscal um, ability of a top-tier research institution to address these larger issues of equity and access out in the community? Um, you know, our tagline is "What starts here changes the world." And speaking as someone in this role and as a native Austinite, you know, it's sort of this idea of, well, why don't we start in our backyard, right? Um, and I think connected to the great thought leadership that you, Stuart, we realize how important history is, right? The historical 
context of Austin and how UT is sort of a microcosm of those larger political community themes. Um, and so I think about 10 years ago, definitely through the direction of President Powers at the time and continued through President Finvis and our current vice president, Dr. Leonard Moore, we've been really um, equipped and uh, encouraged to figure out ways that we can dismantle issues around systemic inequity, um, whether that's housing and affordability or health access or education equity, um, and realizing that we have a, a lot of work to do because UT historically has been complicit in a lot of these larger conversations. And so this is really about building trust with the community. A lot of people say we need to rebuild trust, and I argue I'm not sure it was ever there. You know, um, we've been complicit in that divide of I-35, you know, east to west, resourced, under-resourced. You know, we've been complicit in conversations and policies around, you know, land grabs and around um, contributing to gentrification. And so I'm really excited about what the, the work that we're doing uh, within the Center of Community Engagement under the leadership of Dr. Uh, Suchi Guraj um, and really identifying ways that we can take the research that's being t uh, taking place on campus mm -hmm. and leverage it in a way that it empowers the incredible work that's already being done at the grassroots community level. And I really see our role as not just stewarding and facilitating those conversations, but identifying ways that we can be a part of the disruption of some of those systemic issues. And I, I think that that's great. That leads me to um, my second question in terms of this notion of disruption, because obviously you're a black woman. Um, the LBJ school doesn't have enough diversity. We don't have enough, uh, not just people of color graduating, but specifically African-American women and men graduating. Um, the University of Texas, as you've alluded to, has a really rough history with racial segregation that we're going to get deeper into when we talk about as we saw it. But what do you think of your role is specifically as somebody who's you're you're a longhorn um obviously you love uh austin and and university of texas and the state of texas but it's a it's a state and a city and a university with a deep history of racial segregation and any inequality and not just history but contemporaneously it's happening right now as we're speaking in terms of 2019 what do you think your role is having earned these degrees being put in this position and I would tell our listeners, not only is uh, Virginia somebody who works at UT, but she's a thought leader um, in and around the city of Austin and nationally as well. So what do you think your role is? Um, well, one, that's a very kind um, categorization of who true. I am and work. Um, but, you know, it's funny because I even giggle when you say things like, you're a longhorn. And if you had asked me growing up, that was like the farthest thing from my mind, you know, even being the product of a parent who went to UT Law School. But growing up, UT did not... Um, signify necessarily a welcoming space for people that look like me. Um, and so that historical knowledge was very present in my adolescence. And so um, I think it's sort of um, hilarious and amazing all at the same time that I end up at UT for graduate school. And I think it was such a great opportunity for me to see again, sort of how UT has functioned at a very micro level of these larger conversations happening in, throughout the city and throughout the state of Texas and throughout the US. And I think 
The reasons why I chose to go to school for public policy is I realized as much as I consider myself a storyteller and as sort of a community advocate, you know, in terms of community organizing, that policy and the way that we systemically set up infrastructure um, is paramount to dismantling the type of environment that we've created over time, whether that's on campus or within Austin. And so I really see my role, whether we're talking about the hat I wear here at UT or just in my various, you know, um, sort of experiences throughout Austin, um, is helping to, one, reframe the conversation. I think Austin for a really long time has gotten away with sort of focusing on this lovely, very um, convenient narrative of being, you know, super progressive and super liberal and, you know, we're the top 10 place to live, the top greenest place, the best for tacos. It's cool to I be mean, weird. Yeah, exactly. At some point, it was like we were top 10 of everything, best toilet paper. You know, it was getting out of control. And that was largely people's perception of us as a city, where simultaneously and just under the surface was a more important um, reality. And that lived reality was experience, being experienced mostly by people of color. And that is, we are the most economically segregated city in the country, right? Um, for a good portion of the mid-2000s, we were the fastest growing city in the country that was simultaneously losing its black population. Which doesn't make sense, right? Typically, if there's growth and there's jobs, then that's where Black people move to. And so for me, I think part of my role is helping to reframe um, the conversation that, one, is truthful, and two, allows us to confront the historical um, impact of these policies and practices so that we can identify the uh, strategies and solutions to making sure that Austin is a place that everyone can thrive, not just the folks that happen to have amazing tech jobs, not just the uh, the people who happen to innately identify with the culture of Austin. And that leads me to a question about, um, one, University of Texas in terms of helping to heal com- contemporary racial injustice, and we're talking about that a bit, but you really um, um, significantly contributed to, to that uh, with this book, as we saw it, the story of integration at the University of Texas, which was published last year and is um, about to go into its second printing, um, I want you to discuss uh, this this book, this anthology, and the story it tells. And and um, I want to start there, but I, I want to really drill down um, into what that means. And there's a group called the Precursors, who are some of the first African Americans. Uh, and people of color to enroll at UT. And obviously there's Heman Sweat in 1950 and, you know, uh, first black law student. What, 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 is, what is as we saw it and what is, why is this so significant? Sure. So to, I guess, provide a little bit of history about how we even got to the place of a book. Um, so prior to me even being at UT, um, a huge credit goes to Leslie Blair, who's my co-editor, and people like uh, Dr. Bumfus, um, and the precursors themselves, who were really committed to keeping these stories alive um, until we found a way to truly um, sort of create a safe place for them to you know, live on. And um, when I entered the LBJ school as a graduate student, I was really fortunate to have a graduate assistant position 
within the Division of Diversity and Community Engagement and happened to be within the communications department because that was my background. And I got introduced to these incredible um, individuals that we call the precursors um, at one of our functions. And I was just so inspired by the idea that there was this group of alumni that were still so connected. And um, Leslie kind of informed me that, you know, over the years we had tried to kind of document their stories and we had an archive of a few, but no one really had the bandwidth to do anything about it. And I was like, well, that's what graduate students are for, right? (laughs) To create bandwidth when it doesn't exist. Um, And so that became sort of the project that I took on. And um, so basically, I just interviewed as many precursors as possible um, and then would sort of create summary um, stories and post it on this website that we created. And then we realized that um, these stories deserved um, a more elevated space. And that was a book. And what we realized for me, you know, this was 2014, 2015, right? So this is right after Ferguson. This is right after the Mizzou sort of protest. Um, this is right after um, the decision around Fisher versus UT. So you have these heightened conversations taking place across the country around race and the interaction between um, the police force, right? Race and higher education and affirmative action. Um, the idea of um, pol- politicizing black bodies within um, college athletics. All these conversations are circling around and At the time, as a student, I realized that it wasn't just about recognizing and honoring these voices that had contributed so much to UT, although that is a bulk of why we did the book, but also realizing that there was a place contemporarily, that's not a word, but there was a place for these stories in current context for students to say, oh my goodness, you know, when I navigate the spaces of UT that have statues um, commemorating Confederate soldiers, when I live in dorms that have the name of someone who never wanted me present on this campus, I also have these stories of the precursors who created a space for me. So they're they're a counter-narrative. Exactly. It's a counter-narrative, and it's also... um, in some ways, a blueprint Mm -hmm. for how we navigate these conversations today. Um, And we realized that it was so timely and relevant to bring these stories finally to life. And when we think about these stories, now that um, one of the things that the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy is going to do is a a course that's going to use, as we saw it, and some other local materials that looks at civil rights here at University of Texas and the the story of sort of segregation to at least a putative desegregation here at the University of Texas. Why do you think it's so important for um, not only students of color, but for white students, faculty, staff, um, citizens um, right here in Austin and the state of Texas to really understand this story, to know it, this story, really to know it as as well as we know, um, you know, the eyes of, of, of Texas and as, as well as we know Bevo. Yeah. And, you know, why is it so important? Well, I think, again, institutional memory is super important and powerful. The way that we memorize things on an individual level, but more importantly as a collective, I think really helps set the tone for how we navigate current conversations and current spaces. And so, you know, I think one of the examples that I love to share was sort of the process of research, which was so in demonstrative of how these group of students had been remembered and had been recognized. When we first start doing sort of um, 
our secondary research outside of um, personal accounts and interviews, you know, I went to several libraries and archives expecting to get loads and loads of materials, right? I'm going to be all day in this basement, in this dungeon, just, you know, shuffling through boxes and pages. And um, some of the first times that I went to a particular center, I was handed back a one-inch vanilla folder that simply was labeled Negroes at UT. And it was this stark reminder that not only were we somewhere in the dust of a you know a box in the bottom of a basement negroes but, at ut but we hadn't even been given <laughs> the respect of names dates a creative title for you know wow. that folder um so you opened up that folder and it was literally loose leaf papers and photos no names no dates and we're thinking how could we be the first people to ask for these materials? How can we be the first people to realize how important it is for this to be elevated to a point where this is a part of our institutional story? And I think that was indicative of what we're, what we're doing um, today in terms of not taking accountability for the ways in which we have not created inclusive spaces. We have not created equity within the education system or equity within the ways that our political system affirms certain communities and marginalizes other communities. And so for us, the book became a tool for not only telling the story and the history of the institution, but in some ways challenging us to take a hard look about where we were um, in our current context um, around diversity and inclusion. And I want to drill down on, as we saw and your understanding and knowledge of um, the University of Texas and athletics, because I think one of the things that those of us who are African-American or black and we work in higher education, especially at these prestigious schools like the University of Texas, one of the stark ironies is the way in which um, black students, both men and women, um, play at Division I sports at some of the most um, historically segregated universities. But then now they become real engines of financial wealth and, and resource production um, at places like the University of Texas. University of Texas football is a great example. Um, was late to desegregation. Mm -hmm. um, this year we just won, um, is it the, Sugar, the Bowl. Sugar Bowl? Just won the Sugar Bowl. Um, finished the year top 10, which is going to be huge for fundraising, for resources. Most of our players are black players. Um, yet at the same time, there's a real underside and dark history historically, but even contemporaneously in terms of how do we view black uh, student athletes, mm -hmm. uh, both women and men. And um, I'd like you to talk about that some before getting to, to, to our final question. But what, 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 were, what were college athletics like for the precursors? Yeah. Um, what was school spirit like for the precursors? Well, I think, you know, what was so interesting about the way this book developed, right, is we were looking for themes. We knew that we couldn't tell a comprehensive story. We were also really... Um, committed and passionate about making sure that this didn't bog down too much in terms of the ins and outs of policies and lawsuits, because we really wanted to tell stories. And one of the stories that definitely rose to the top was this intersection between race and athletics. And what I think is really interesting is watching sort of the timeline evolve within um, the University of Texas athletics and the value that we attributed to Black bodies and Black people. 
So when uh, the University of Texas integrated its undergraduate students in 1956, which was uh, four years after, I'm sorry, five years after they had integrated the uh, the graduate school. Um, So in 1956, they integrated the undergraduate students. But basically what the university said was, you can come here and you can get an education, you can get a diploma, but you're not going to involve yourself in any other part of the Um, experience of being a college student, right? So students weren't allowed to live on campus. Students weren't allowed to eat except for one dining hall. Um, Most of the, what we call the drag, which is Guadalupe Street at the time was segregated. So movie theaters were off limits, shopping. And the other part of sort of the social experience that was um, off limits was athletics. So most of the precursors at the time, um, if they wanted to participate in athletics, it was through the fraternities. So there was a pretty robust Greek sort of um, uh, recreational yeah, intramural. athletic, intramural, thank yeah. you is the term. Um, and so they would compete against other HBCUs um, or other, um, you know, at the time, PWIs throughout the state of Texas and the South. Um, in 1965, we get our first African-American uh, student athlete who is afforded a scholarship, James Means, um, track and field. A lot of people argue track and field was the first to integrate because in some ways it was an individual sport. Um, and so you didn't have to really deal with the idea of you know traveling together and you know lodging together. Um, and then... So we go from 65 to 68, where we finally integrate the basketball team, just the men's basketball team. And um, one of the things that we talk about in the book is realizing that um, the University of Texas realized the um, visibility of its athletics um, as both perhaps a, um, a way of helping to Um, socially deconstruct sort of the stigma around race, but in some ways also realize that it could be a detriment to the economic engine of the athletics, which is why we argue that the, you know, football was the last frontier in terms of athletics. You know, football in Texas was king. um, But at the end of the day, you know, the really the only reason that we integrated the football team is because we were getting our butts kicked by integrated schools. And so a lot of the precursors, there's some great um, videos that we have of them talking about going to football games and going to track meets and rooting for whatever team had a black player on it, which meant rooting against the University of Texas. Texas. <laughs> so a lot of them would go to the track and they would wear whatever colors the opposing team was wearing. Um, just this last year, we honored C.R. Roberts, who was one of the first black uh, football players at the University of Southern California. And he actually led a lawsuit against um, UT and USC because UT hadn't integrated at the time. They were supposed to come down and play in um, the late 50s. And they said that he couldn't travel with the team or he couldn't play on the field. Um, and so he said, I'm not going to travel and we're all going to quit if you don't figure out a way for us to play. Um, and so we actually honored C.R. Roberts at the uh, Black Texas Exus event um, just this fall, realizing again sort of that the gridiron became this very politicized space, um, that it became sort of this way of saying um, students of color were going to create a space for themselves on this campus. And But as we see used sort of the University of Texas, arguably, is that um, in some ways, we used it because it was the only way to stay competitive. Mm. Um, and, you know, there's lovely quotes from um, 
our lovely former football coach back in the 60s and 70s saying he would never let a Negro play for him. Daryl K. Royal. Daryl K. Royal, yes. And we integrated in 1971. Um, and Earl Campbell she, saved us. Well, <laughs> Earl Campbell was actually in the latter part of that uh, integration yeah, period. Yes. But, you know, as we all know, became an incredible force on the field. You know, before that, there was Roosevelt Leakes, um, who really ushered in sort of a really competitive um, football team. Um, and then we have people like Bill Lyons, who became instrumental in um, helping to recruit Black students. Um, He was one of the first Black basketball players brought to UT. Um, And then here we go fast forward to 2019, where the majority of our student athletes are African-American. And um, I think one of the things that I appreciate so much about a lot of the work that the Division of Diversity does is to make sure that we really are creating an experience of being student athletes, that our students of color that happen to come so that they could also be competitive athletes are leaving being fully um, supported students so that they, beyond their time on the field or court, um, they have a way of supporting themselves and contributing to our community. And unfortunately, that's not the case around the country. And that's not the case historically, that we've kind of used people up physically, emotionally, psychologically, and when there are no longer good to us, um, you know, they lose their scholarship or they don't graduate with a degree. Um, And so um, sports, I think we could all argue, uh, one of the things I really appreciate about the platform of the undefeated is that sports has really been a politicized space, particularly for communities of color. Um, And I think we've seen that exercise the last few years, particularly around conversations like Black Lives Matter and Colin Kaepernick and LeBron James. Um, okay, final question. Uh, this has been great. Um, I want to talk about the city of Austin and the DDCE and the work that you're doing um, as we saw it. And um, what can the city do? Because uh, um, obviously there's been conversations, the mayor, the city council, about gentrification, about equality. Um, there's a mayor's task force for ending institutional um, racism. Um, that some of us here at UT were a part of. Um, What can we do moving forward, um, both policy-wise, politically, as a community, um, to really ensure racial racial and economic um, justice, especially uh, 2019 is the 400th anniversary of Jamestown, Virginia, and 19 enslaved Africans coming to colonial Virginia, what would become the United States of America. Uh, this is the 90th birthday or would have been a 90th birthday of, of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. What can we do um, to, to, to bring us closer um, to that, that, that idea of racial and economic justice? I think Austin is a really interesting um, city. And I think for me, um, a lot of the work has to be around us being willing to confront our own complicitness and our own um, Uh, bias that we've allowed sort of this lovely facade of progressivism and liberalism um, overshadow the work that needs to be done um, and realizing that that's just the way that we vote, right? That's not actually the way in which policies are being carried out or practices are being created. And so I think the first thing is that at an institutional level, at a leadership level, we need to be really honest with ourselves about the ways in which we've created environments environments that um, support and in some ways empower continued inequity. Um, So I think that's the first thing. The second thing um, is that we have to 
be willing to be creative and bold. You know, we talk a lot about how innovative Austin is and how creative we are, but that's mostly siloed around this tech conversation. And a lot of that tech conversation has been imported. Um, And so I think to truly be innovative in a creative city, right, we shouldn't be one of the largest populations of people experiencing homelessness, right? We shouldn't be a city that is pushing a majority of its community of color outside the city limits because they can't afford to live here. Um, And so some of the disruptive practices have to come with people um, being willing to set aside um, positions of privilege and power in order to um, create opportunity for equitable practices. And I think we're seeing that happen just really, really slowly. And so I think the biggest things that we're facing as a city are around affordability. And that's a conversation about housing practices, but it's also a conversation about um, workforce um, and who's getting opportunity. You know, some of the latest statistics are, you know, we're bringing in all these really amazing spaces of industry and we're saying it's going to bring in 40,000 jobs. But are uh, bring in forty thousand jobs, but it also means probably that they're bringing in forty thousand people who didn't live here five minutes ago to take those jobs. And it's like we have incredible talent right here that's being you know cultivated and made you know right in Central Texas. What are we doing to make sure that those folks are being a part of those conversations? And likewise, you know, we're doing a lot of work around housing and affordability. What we're realizing that is that it's not so much um, whether or not affordable housing is being created. Um, it's also about is it appropriate housing yeah. to capture the market that um, otherwise wouldn't have a place to be. Um, and so um, I think we really need collaborative um, investment around some of these conversations because I think Austin is really good at starting conversations and starting efforts. And then you turn around, all of a sudden we've got 20 people working on the same thing, but not working together. Um, And that's, I think that collaborative nature is when we make comprehensive impact. All right, great. That'll be the final word. Thank you so much, Virginia Cumberbatch, uh, who's the director of... Community equity and advocacy yeah director of community equity and advocacy used to be director of community engagement the <laughs> community engagement center but um the title shift as people <laughs> grow and get 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 their their impact becomes even larger it's been great having this conversation with you and um we hope to talk to you again soon awesome thank you so much for having me and thank you for the space that you've created thanks for listening to this episode and you can check out related content on Twitter, at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu. And the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.